Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. This is Joe Cohen. Today, we're going to be talking about how to fix food sensitivities. Now, this is a topic that I don't feel like there's enough information on or there's not enough good information on because it's not something that there's very specific scientific information about what is a food sensitivity, where is it from, how can you fix it, right? It's it's not even entirely clear where it's from. And I've been doing a lot of research to understand it and experiments and also working with other people to try to get an understanding of what is this whole situation of food sensitivities? Food sensitivities is, I would say that it also encompasses food allergies. So there's food allergies. But a lot of people think of food allergies as you go to the hospital if you eat peanuts because your, your throat closes up. However, there's a lot of allergies or sensitivities that are not as severe. You don't need an EpiPen, but maybe your throat starts tickling. Maybe you get some mucus formation, maybe you have a runny nose, maybe you get a little weaker, a little more tired, a little inflammation. So there's kind of a whole host of things that can occur that don't necessarily involve acute care. And so that's what I consider food sensitivities. It's where you feel weaker from a food, but it's not something that you need to go to the hospital for. And there's all different kinds, right? There's, you know, some of it, I wouldn't say there's just one category of food sensitivities, but, you know, something is happening in the body where you take in a food and your body is not reacting in a way that it should react. It shouldn't attack the food. It shouldn't have inflammation. It should just see the food as not a foreign object that needs to be attacked and the immune system doesn't need to be generated. And, you know, so the system should be able to recognize it and not provoke an immune response. Now, what are these food sensitivities from? So in a broad sense, these food sensitivities are from inflammation, right? And and that's kind of what's clear. Everybody knows this, this inflammation that's occurring from these foods. That inflammation could be at, you know, in the gut. And that's kind of, so people with IBS and IBD, almost always have food sensitivities. People with allergies and a whole bunch of other kinds of conditions also almost have food sensitivities. But in those cases, it doesn't necessarily involve the gut. It could involve other places. So where food sensitivities manifest themselves is not a single place because everybody has a weak point in the body, right? The problem is, is that if it's not located in the gut, which by the way, quite a lot of people have some kind of gut inflammation or some kind of gut symptom. But if it's not located in the gut, that's kind of where it gets even a little more murky. So a lot of people with autoimmune disorders of whether the thyroid or a whole host of autoimmune disorders, multiple sclerosis, they notice benefits from having a more restricted diet of, you know, eating things that don't provoke food sensitivities. And one recent example of this has been Jordan Peterson, who really, he said he had a lot of autoimmune issues, a lot of mood disorders, 
mood issues, and he followed a very strict diet of just eating beef and salt. And he said those things really basically went away. His autoimmune issues and his mood issues got a lot better. And so you, you hear a lot of these stories, and I would say that I was a similar case, whereas when I limited the foods to a few things, basically meat, beef, and vegetables, a lot of the inflammation that I was experiencing went away. And so that really caused me to go on a journey to try to understand where, what is the source of these food sensitivities and why do some food sensitivities different, differ from other ones? Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. Click the subscribe button now and enjoy the rest of the episode. And so first of all, our immune systems are different. So food sensitivities are not always from the same mechanism necessarily. And one example is the T helper system, where there's basically, you don't have to understand the technical aspects, but there's something called TH1, TH2, and TH17. And some people, there's kind of a balance when you're more TH1, often you're less TH2. When you're more TH2, often you're less TH1. TH1 and TH17 tend to go together. And, you know, depending on your immune profile, you could be sensitive or allergic to different things. So that's an example where they both can cause inflammation, but the inflammation is a little different and the sensitivities are a bit different. And so that is one thing that's for sure going on within food sensitivities, that system. But in time, I've been able to recognize other pathways that are causing these food sensitivities. And a lot of these path pathways are also involved in autoimmune disease. And so it kind of goes together often where people who have an autoimmune type of profile, they get inflammation. You know, they're basically, autoimmunity is the, is your system is lacking the ability to recognize yourself as your own tissue, right? You have, let's say, a thyroid. Your body is attacking your thyroid. Why would your body attack your thyroid if, if, it's, if it's part of your own cells, right? So your body is not, is treating your immune system. Your body, your body is treating your organs as if it were a foreign system. So when someone has an autoimmune disease, it means that they're, they're attacking their own organs. So let's say you have Hashimoto's, which is thyroid autoimmunity. Your body is creating antibodies to your thyroid gland. And that's not supposed to happen. And that happens when the immune system is imbalanced in a certain way and there's certain pathways which that occur. Now, if your body is recognizing your own organ as a foreign object, then it's, it's also likely that it's recognizing various food antigens or food proteins as foreign objects, right? And so a lot of people with autoimmunity, 
they will, you know, their their body's attacking their own organs, but it's also attacking a lot of the foods that they eat. And so there's there is a connection between the two. And also, if the body's attacking, if if the immune system gets generated for by some trigger, it could be anything environmental, it could be food, whatever is the weak point, wherever the body wasn't like it recognizing very well, let's say the thyroid, that's when it will get triggered and the issue will get worse. And so people often notice it by, by their weak point, right? They might feel like, hey, they have less energy because the thyroid, whatever. And so, you know, it, number one is there's a correlation between your body not recognizing your your own body your own organ but th- there's also a correlation between your body not recognizing a food and they also go hand in hand if you're if you get inflammation from a food then it's also going to spike inflammation in organs as well now Let's look at what are some of the mechanisms within autoimmunity. So I mentioned the Th1, Th17, Th2, but the main pathway in which when when I was doing a lot of reading, what are you know the mechanisms between food sensitivities, food allergies, autoimmunity, T regulatory cells kept on being mentioned. And there's also specific types of T regulatory cells, but these types of cells are they basically regulate the inflammation. They tame down the inflammation. It's a central way where the body can recognize what is part of your own, you know, what is, what is safe and what is foreign. What is, what is something it shouldn't attack and what is foreign that it should attack. So your body is really trying to recognize what is harmful to your body. Harmful would be an infection or a toxin, for example, and not harmful would be a food or your own organs. Now, often toxins and infections can put these things out of whack. And so a lot of times people get an infection, whether it's mono, flu, whatever it is, right? And after they start to notice that they have other symptoms, like, oh, I started to get this random inflammation in this part of my body after I got, you know, some kind of infection. Or sometimes a lot of people say that they got it affected by mold they got they, they got exposed to mold and then all of a sudden they had all these health issues as a result and so the toxins and the infections have a way to imbalance the system but really what it what it comes down to is these t regulatory cells as the most important mechanism now there's a whole host of ways to regulate these t regulatory cells and there's also Certain types of T regulatory cells. One is called FOXP3, which is the T regulatory cells that create tolerance. And so when you're researching autoimmunity, the T regulatory cells come up a lot because they essentially create tolerance to you know, your own organs. And by the way, and, and also food allergies, they come up because they also create tolerance to foreign proteins. Now, there's another place that they actually come up, and this is something that I forgot to mention, where I said that the immune system is designed to attack and get rid of toxins and infections. Another thing it's designed to attack and get rid of is cancer. So 
a lot of deregulatory research also involves cancer because when your body is prone to be tolerant of a lot of things, it could make a mistake and tolerate cancer. It can make a mistake and tolerate infections, for example. But cancer is something that comes up a lot where, you know, you don't want to tolerate the cancer cells. And so a lot of, you know, some of the cancer therapies are involved with lowering these T-regulatory cells. But really what it comes down to is these T-regulatory cells are also, they can change locally in various places, right? So you can have T-regulatory cells on the thyroid, you can have them in the gut, you can have them in cancer tissue. And some natural herbs or you know, natural products, they can increase T-regulatory cells in one way and decrease them in another way. A good example in, in like a certain other tissue, for example, cancer, a good example is that, of that is one of the main polyphenols in green tea, EGCG, and then also astragalus. So these are known as anti-cancer and they generally will decrease T-regulatory cells within cancer tissue. You know, it's not clear how much they work exactly, but that's the general concept. And they can increase them in other tissue to increase tolerance to, you know, like, for example, in the gut. So to increase tolerance for foods and, and other things like that. Now, when I was doing research on T-regulatory cells, I remember it was around 2014. I realized this was a very important part of inducing the tolerance. One of the main things that the research was discussing, like there was basically a couple key pillars, vitamin A, vitamin D, and omega-3. So that's EPA, DHA. Those were the main three key pillars of T-regulatory cells. Now, when it comes to vitamin A, very few people are actually deficient. And so when I did experiments of taking high doses of vitamin A, didn't, I didn't really notice any significant effect. And I don't think most people would. There is a few cases where you could be deficient. For example, if you're on a vegan diet and you have certain genetic propensities not to convert beta carotene to retinol. And so that could be problematic for certain people on a vegan diet. But on a regular omnivorous diet, and especially if you're consuming liver, so liver is very rich in vitamin A, there's no reason you should be deficient in vitamin A. But again, that can differ between, based on genetics. There's genetic predispositions. But in general, I would say most people are not deficient in vitamin A, the vast majority. And so that gets to vitamin D and omega-3, where most people actually don't get sufficient quantity because most people don't eat sufficient quantities of fish. And even if they did eat, there's a pharmaceutical effect. There's a, a, an additional effect of getting more in, in, of, of omega-3s. Meaning something that people misunderstand often is, am I deficient or not? The body doesn't work like that. A lot of these foods can work as medicine. So if you eat fish or specific parts of it, especially the EPA and DHA from omega-3, that there's a deficiency, a deficiency threshold, which you could argue that most people are not deficient, but there's a, there's a medicinal effect. Whereas if you take more, you get more of the effect. So the same thing goes with a lot of nutrients, right? So a lot of people, you know, am I deficient or not? When I think about nutrients, I don't think about am I deficient or not per se. I think about if I got more 
would I have a better effect in the body? And that's not currently how people think about nutrients, right? And, and some of the reason is because more is not always better, depends on the nutrient, you know, and, and, and so in certain cases, more is not always better. But often more is better for a certain issue or a certain whatever, a certain goal, let's say. So omega-3 and vitamin D are, vitamin D is, is, is deficient in most people. That is known. And so getting more vitamin D is going to be important for T regulatory cells. Again, that's for food sensitivities, autoimmunity. And then omega-3 is also really good for autoimmunity and food sensitivities. And when I did megadose omega-3, I noticed a significant effect. Not too significant effect with vitamin D, maybe a little bit, but did notice a good effect from omega-3. Now, you don't want to focus on any one thing too much because the more you take it, if you're taking omega-3 as a medicinal thing, then the more likely you are for side effects. And I was taking in huge amounts of omega-3 for its medicinal properties, and it was doing a pretty decent job of lowering food sensitivities, but it actually can thin your blood too much. And, you know, I, I, I started to notice, notice that I would get bruises a lot easier. And so I basically decided, okay, let me cut down to something more reasonable. And that was, you know, that, that helped, but it didn't kind of fix the food sensitivity problem. Even at high doses, it wasn't a, a complete fix. Now, I was trying to, I, I always knew that there's a lot of other things in the, you know, in the whole food sensitivity or autoimmunity realm that I wasn't really quite understanding. And so one of the things I, I figured out after omega-3, so omega-3 was the first thing I figured out, and that was a good, a good hack, you could say. Another thing was butyrate, and it just kept on coming up ever since I discovered it in the form of resistant starch. So that's Joe's resistant starch. I've been taking that for a long time and it's just had incredible effects on the, on the body, especially food sensitivities and autoimmunity. Now there is a dose effect with butyrate. More is not necessarily better. And so I've pushed the dosage there as well until I started to get some negative effects. But when you take a certain amount, I recommend 20 grams as a good, easy starting dosage that won't cause any side effects. If you want to lean on that more, you could take 40, maybe even 60 if you get used to it. But I was taking 100, 120, and that was too much. And, and you know, I'm, basically the, the side effects were gastrointestinal. But the, the effect was too strong as well. You know, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was just a very, very strong effect. I like to not over rely on one thing to, uh, you know, basically counteract or something that in my body. So I kind of stayed with butyrate at about 40 grams a day. And since I'm taking a lot of supplements now, I actually use about 25 grams a day now. So maybe I might go up to 30, but essentially it's because I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch of other things. And, and by the way, that makes a big difference, right? If I was doing less things, I would take more omega-3, more butyrate. But since I'm doing more things, I kind of moderate. I don't, I don't go too heavy on one area. 
And one of the things, one of the recent things that I noticed was very good for food sensitivities was niacin. And it's interesting because niacin is one of those things that you get a lot of warnings about on the internet because it can cause flushing. So if you just Google niacin, it says do not consume more than 16 milligrams a day. Now, they've been giving 3,000 milligrams a day to lower cholesterol for a really long time, and they found no increased mortality at all in any of the studies. So 3,000 milligrams a day is, is perfectly safe. I think it's it's just scaremongering that they put in 16 milligrams a day. Now, there is negatives of niacin, but because it has a lot of positives, it also counteracts the negatives. So the negatives of 3,000 milligrams a day could be issues with the liver, could elevate liver enzymes, and it also could cause some higher glucose levels. But there's ways to minimize those effects where... But again, I don't like to go too heavy on any one area. And so I'm kind of experimenting now between 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams. Um, and I'm also doing things to prevent those negative effects. And, and I take blood tests to make sure that there's no negative effects in those areas, including LDL, uh, including liver enzymes. So I check my liver enzymes and I also check my blood glucose. And, and the third thing is actually homocysteine. So those are the three main negatives of taking high doses of niacin. And these studies show taking high doses of niacin without counteracting any of the negative effects. I think if you counteract the negative effects, then I think it would, you know, the, the results would be significantly better. And also, especially if you take lower doses. But in any case, I think niacin, it activates a, a very specific receptor called GPR. 109A. And, you know, essentially it's, it's, it's a receptor that creates tolerance, increases these T regulatory cells. And there's only two things that increase this receptor that activate the receptor. That's niacin and butyrate. And both of those things I found to be very good for food sensitivities. So the, you know, I basically develop hypotheses based on a whole range of data points. And in this case, this was based on experiments on myself, reading a lot of research. So niacin and butyrate are both known to increase T regulatory cells. They also, it's known through this pathway, the GPR109A. They also increase, increases tolerance, especially in the gut. And so that, it's, those two things are also very good for IBD which is that gut inflammation, especially from food sensitivities. And then I do these experiments on, my, on myself and I see, hey, when I consume these things, my food sensitivities go down. So that's why I believe this GPR109A receptor is very important for food sensitivities and also autoimmunity to a fair degree. But so that's kind of two areas that I noticed, the GPR109A, the TH1, TH17 pathway and TH2. And then there's the VDR pathway, which is related to vitamin D. So when you increase vitamin D, you activate this vitamin D receptor, and that increases the T regulatory cells. You also have the HLA receptors. That's involved in a lot of autoimmune conditions. And I think that probably has something to do with food sensitivities. So a lot of the things that are anti-inflammatories that I find 
lower inflammation in general, they inhibit these various forms of these receptors, the HLA or MHC receptors. Another thing that I found was very good for food sensitivities was the cannabinoid system. So this is something like one of the things I noticed with people with food sensitivities or food allergies, they actually do very well with marijuana. If I take marijuana with a food, I notice the reactions to the food go down significantly. And I've seen this in other people as well. But there's negatives as well, of course, right? I don't want to get high every day. And so it wasn't a sustainable solution. But when you activate these cannabinoid receptors, it does in increase these T regulatory cells. It does decrease inflammation significantly. It increases this pathway that's called PPAR gamma that is overall is, is like an anti-inflammatory pathway. The negative to that is you could also gain weight. So a lot of people who have this predisposition to autoimmunity, to inflammation, to food sensitivities, they, they often are very thin or you know they have a problem gaining weight. Not always. Some people could also be overweight, but essentially a, a lot of people who are thin naturally kind of have a problem with the cannabinoid system slash PPAR gamma, and that's a whole pathway there. So based on my reading, my experiments, and seeing, you know, all these things together, I think the cannabinoid system is another mechanism there. And that's something I discovered a number of years ago. So I kind of keep on discovering things throughout the years, and I, I write them down, or I, you know, I think about it as a pathway. Now, another, I believe, is the methylation pathway. So I noticed a lot of people with these food sensitivities, autoimmune profile, they have issues with the methylation pathway and they have certain genetic variants that cause them to not be able to convert synthetic folate to an active folate. And there's various issues, you know, you, you just kind of see a lot of people in this that, that have these food sensitivities or, or chemical sensitivity, they kind of have issues with methylation. It's not always the case, but, you know, folate, the the active folate and, and methylation can I do believe there's a there is a relevance to food sensitivities and also mental health and so a lot of times those things go together uh, so the methylfolate can increase you know, serotonin can increase dopamine and it could also increase T regulatory cells and so that's another pathway that I think is relevant. Now, I would say that that is an overview. The other pathways really are involved with, some of them are like mTOR inhibition. So for example, one thing that I think could help with food sensitivities is rapamycin. Rapamycin is a drug they give to people when they want to transplant an organ, right? So when you transplant a foreign organ, the body often rejects it because they recognize it not as self, rightly so, right? The, you don't want the body to recognize, like it, you, if you just put a foreign organ inside yourself, that causes a lot of problems and for good reason. So what they give rapamycin for is basically to tame the immune system so that your body can more easily recognize this foreign object and, and also not overreact in the process if, you know, insofar as it doesn't recognize the foreign object. 
And so the main mechanism of rapamycin is what's called mTOR inhibition. And what I did, you know, and I saw the mTOR inhibition, it does increase T regulatory cells. And so this rapamycin, I tried it and it seemed to significantly reduce food sensitivities as well. And so that's what makes me believe that the mTOR inhibition pathway is significant. And it's also a way to research food sensitivities in a certain way. It's called either graft versus host, if you want to like look up the research, or transplant allograft rejection. So they'll talk about various drugs or substances as it relates to transplant rejection. And if something decreases transplant rejection, it means that it's reconfiguring the body in a way that it's more tolerant to foreign items, if you will, right? Whether it's an organ, foreign organ, or, you know, foreign foods or anything, right? So I, I believe that mTOR inhibition is an interesting pathway. Again, a lot of the other ones are just involved, like any kind of cytokine or any kind of inflammatory part of that pathway is, is going to increase inflammation. There's a lot of other pathways that I've noticed, but one thing I think it's important to realize is there, there's not one pathway that just causes the inflammation. And that's why I think some people have different genetic variants for different things. They could be weak in a certain pathway, and that pathway might predispose to one kind of food sensitivity versus another, or one kind of allergy, or one kind of autoimmune condition versus another. Now, recently, just in the past few months, I discovered a new pathway that made me very excited. And so this is called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And this, so I, there's a lot more research on this now than there was before, because I remember reading about it back in 2013 even. And the research back then was just basically like, it's not clear what's happening here because it seems like there's, you know, some pros and cons and they, it didn't seem like they knew what to make of the research. But recently, it seemed to be significantly more clear that this aryl hydrocarbon receptor was basically involved in creating tolerance to various foods. And so I, I kind of said, okay, this, how do I activate this aryl hydrocarbon receptor? And there was actually a really good study done in, it was published in, in Cell, and it's, it's called actually, it's a review article, Dietary and Microbial Determinants in Food Allergy. The aryl hydrocarbon receptor is essentially, the main thing that activates that is tryptophan in the diet. Tryptophan and a certain microbial balance. So when you consume tryptophan, your body will break that down into what's called indoles. And again, you don't have to understand what that means, but these indoles activate this receptor and that receptor, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor creates these, it makes the, the gut less leaky, you could say. It increases the tight, junction, tight junctions and it, it makes the barrier of the gut much more effective. And that and it also activates a whole bunch of detox pathways. So a lot of people with these food sensitivities also notice that they're more sensitive to foreign chemicals. And 
this aryl hydrocarbon receptor not only makes you it increases the T regulatory cells, increases decreases the gut permeability, but it also more significantly also helps detox a whole bunch of foreign chemicals, especially things like plastics and dioxins and things like that. But uh, essentially, when your body is, you know, when you consume the tryptophan, if you have the right microbial balance, and this is where probiotics come in. So often, you know, just taking tryptophan sometimes could be a little problematic because if you're chronically stressed, you take tryptophan, your body could convert that into kynurenine. 90% of the tryptophan that you consume is converted to kynurenine. Now, if you're stressed all the time, it could be significantly more than that. And so you're, the kynurenine pathway doesn't, uh, it's separate from the indoles. So your body can create these indoles or it could create kynurenine as one of the things that it creates, right? So there's, there's actually three things that you, you, you take in tryptophan, you can either create serotonin, which is very good for gut health. It's serotonin mainly in the gut, but also outside the gut. It can go to the brain as well. But basically, you create serotonin, and that's very healthy for the gut. Uh, it, it makes the gut move, i.e. motility. It, you know, it does a bunch of good things for the gut and also the brain. The other thing is I mentioned the indoles. So, and those indoles do a whole bunch of different things that are great for the gut and also good for detoxing and good for the, you know, the brain and a whole bunch of other things. Or it can create kynurenin. There are some benefits to kynurenin, but essentially once it goes to kynurenin, it could then get converted into something else, which is quinolinic acid, which is more toxic to the brain. And so what happens is, is that when people get overly stressed, they create less serotonin, they create less indoles, and they create more kynurenin. And that is where the problem is. Now, everybody, you know, again, there's different predispositions, different variants. Some people have a higher need for tryptophan. And so for me, I figuring out my, what my, all my, the, the fundamental sources of my issue were Really, a lot of it really came down to the tryptophan, niacin, and methylfolate. And I'll, I can explain how that works exactly. My tryptophan, and, and again, there's, there's certain genetic variants. There's IDO1 and IDO2, and they, you can have a more active, you know, enzyme that converts more to, to kynurenin, and then you're going to have less indoles and less serotonin. And so you'll get all those problems as a result. Over time, you get more and more food sensitivities as a result of that. Another thing, so that, that's one thing. So not only, so you'll get less, more food sensitivities, less serotonin. That means also more mental health issues. And so I always knew that I was low on serotonin. And I, the way I fixed that was just by taking 5-HTP, which worked quite well. I think that also probably improved my gut reasonably, but it didn't fix the food sensitivities because if I just create more serotonin, it doesn't create more indoles. And so the thing that I was always missing were these indoles. And so I actually didn't know that until recently because tryptophan is high in high levels of all the foods that I eat. It's very 
it's very high in meat, relatively. But you can still have a genetic pathway that just shunts more tryptophan into kynurenin. And so, you know, the tryptophan pathway was one thing. The other thing with tryptophan is if you are also deficient in serotonin, in niacin, your tryptophan will be used to create niacin. And I always felt my niacin was also relatively low. So if you're not, if you don't have enough tryptophan and niacin, then you have a big problem with tryptophan because not only is it getting shunted to serotonin, not only is it getting shunted, not getting shunted to serotonin or indoles, even more of it has to go through the kynurenin pathway and eventually uh, to create niacin, essentially, and less of it into other pathways. So when you take in niacin, it actually does f a few things. It activates a certain receptor, but it also allows for more tryptophan to be used in other ways which is good. The other thing is niacin also helps the conversion of, of tryptophan into 5-HTP and so and serotonin. And so that's very good for the brain as well. Niacin is beneficial to mood. But also methylfolate is important to create that serotonin. So when you're deficient on tryptophan, niacin, and methylfolate, you will be very, very low on serotonin, and that can cause a whole host of mental health issues. So I basically take care of that simply by taking methylfolate, making sure I have enough of that, making sure I get enough niacin, and then making sure I have enough tryptophan. One of the things I was that got me started onto tryptophan was I saw this researcher He's actually no longer alive. I've always been trying to get my LDL cholesterol down. And this researcher said something that was very interesting. He said, LDL cholesterol is basically just a symptom that you have high ApoB. And that's something that I already knew. It's just a measure of ApoB, which is the real cause of cardiovascular disease or one of the significant causes. And that's something that I already knew. But he claims that if you have low, the reason, one of the reasons for high ApoB is that you don't have enough tryptophan. So that was very interesting. Now, I was thinking about taking tryptophan because just for that reason, but I decided not to because I just decided that tryptophan can also convert into one, like a, there's a toxic indole actually, one of the toxic ones. And it, it could convert into things that are not good for the kidneys. And I wanted to make sure my kidneys were healthy. Now, there's a way to counteract that. One of them is butyrate, actually. Another is activated charcoal. And so now I just take activated charcoal and butyrate, and I don't worry about that. But And, and a lot of other natural things that I take actually reduce that those toxins in the body. So um, that is why I kind of stayed away from tryptophan. But... Now that I also understood that this is the critical part of the missing piece of the puzzle of these food sensitivities, I decided that it, the, the benefits outweigh any of the negatives. And so now, you know, tryptophan, uh, niacin, butyrate, omega-3, that I think forms some of the critical parts of the, the regimen to counteract food sensitivities. 
And when I was looking into that as well, I noticed that bile acids were another thing that create created tolerance. And so I actually started, I, I tried a whole bunch of, I tried just whole like a bile acid extract and it caused significant gastrointestinal issues. But I decided to try Tutka, which is a very specific bile acid. And something that I liked about Tutka is it increased T3, which my T3 was generally on the lower end. It decreased cholesterol and it increased gut flow. And it also in increases tolerance to regulatory cells and all these things. And so I, I, you, I take a lot of data points and I see, okay, well, Tutka has all these benefits and I am, you know, it could help me with my T3. And it also might help with the pancreatic enzymes, which are tend to be a little higher. They're not, they're not high on a level where anybody, any doctor would get concerned, but there's, it, it's something that I, that's on my radar. And so I look at all these things that it could be good for and including food sensitivities. And I started taking it and it seems to be very promising for food sensitivities. So the, the, some of the, the main hacks, if you will, to this food sensitivity issue, I think has to do with tryptophan, niacin, butyrate, tutka, which is a bile acid, and, and butyrate, by the way, you get from fiber in your food, especially re resistant starch really produces quite a lot of it. So that's why I, I take that. And uh, so let's see, and also omega-3. So I would say those are the five main things that people need for food sensitivities. Now, there could be other things as well. If you're deficient in vitamin D, zinc, biotin, vitamin A, I would also put probiotics to make sure that your tryptophan is converting to indoles, especially L-reutery, but there's others as well. And there's also some things like potassium, selenium. So th there's some nutrients that could help in various ways, but I would say that the main things, and there's also quite a few polyphenols that could help, but I would say the main thing is butyrate, i.e. resistant starch, niacin, fish oil, tutka, and tryptophan. Now, if you're you know, sensitive to a food, you're not going to reverse that in one day. So you want to take small amounts of it and kind of reverse all the things that were causing the food sensitivity. So if you take a small amount of it and you're taking these things every day and you keep on taking small amounts of it, I've noticed that it, I mean, taking these things together drastically decreases the food sensitivities pretty drastically. And so, I mean, I've tried it in a more acute way just to make sure, like just to see it in, in a short term. For example, I didn't eat eggs for years, like, I don't know, eight years or something like that. And then I just decided, okay, I'm going to eat six eggs today, right? Which is a lot. I don't recommend doing it that way. And the, the immune reaction was quite muted, especially given how many eggs I took. And I think the, the, it, this is the, the main fundamentals of becoming less sensitive to foods. But this also shows why people on a vegan diet will also build up a lot of food sensitivities 
so in one on the one hand, they're getting a lot of fiber, which is good. So that will kind of lower the food sensitivities. On the other hand, they're not getting enough tryptophan. So or niacin often, because niacin and tryptophan are usually found more in meat. And so that's why a lot of people who have autoimmune type issues, they kind of do well with this carnivore diet, where number one is you stay away from all the things that are maybe spiking the immune system, but you're also getting more tryptophan, more niacin, and actually more bile acids as well, because if you're eating more fat, your body's producing more bile as well. On the other hand, one of the mistakes that sometimes these people make is they don't include fiber, which means they're not getting enough butyrate. And so people on an autoimmune type phenotype, they, they end up noticing that fruits, vegetables, plus a high animal food diet, you know, meat, chicken, fish, which is rich in tryptophan, rich in niacin, produces a lot of bile acids. This type of diet makes them feel really good. Now, there's ways to supercharge that by taking tutka, by taking tryptophan, by taking more niacin, by taking more fiber in the form of this butyrate, which is in it, or resistant starch more like, which converts into butyrate. And so that's how you supercharge it in order to even reverse these food sensitivities quicker. And so I think now I, I've, you know, there's always going to be new things that I'm discovering. There's no question, but I think I, I've figured out quite a lot uh, about, you know, very cutting edge ways to re reverse food sensitivities, food allergies. And of course, the, it would also influence autoimmune issues because if you can program the body not to attack what yourself or foods, there are similar mechanisms to both of them. And and so I think that's th th these are breakthroughs, really. And the research has only been coming out in the past couple of years about a lot of these things, meaning there was research before on a variety of things, but things like tryptophan and indoles, this is really something that's more recent that has been coming out. I'm doing more lab tests to see how my labs are changing to make sure they're changing for the better. And I'll let people know how what the results are and also... I'll be experimenting more with, over time, bringing in more foods, and, and I'll let people know. And uh, yeah, I, I also highly recommend using Self-Decode because that is where you could learn specific hacks into reducing just how your body works, what you're more likely to be sensitive to. So, you know, I found a whole bunch of things of what I'm likely to be deficient, what I'm likely to be sensitive to. And you can work using these tools that I'm giving you to counteract those sensitivities so even if you're more likely to be sensitive, it doesn't mean you will actually be allergic or sensitive, but you have that tendency. And using these tools, you could counteract those tendencies. Thank you very much. Please subscribe to the channel. You know, whether I, how much I continue to podcast is a direct result of how many subscribers we have and, you know, where I spend my time. So if you want me to interview people and do these podcasts, please do subscribe to the channel on YouTube, Spotify, and uh, that will encourage me to do more. Please give it a good rating, and that will also encourage me to do more. Thank you very much for listening. Best of luck and best of health. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. 
So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.